Well, I'm here with Nathan Maynard, the author of Hacking School Discipline. Nathan, so, thanks so much for uh, coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Zach. It's a, this is a book that um, gets to the heart of a lot of issues that schools have in terms of discipline and you know, making things just sort of cohesive for everybody. Um, but one of the core values of the book, and correct me if I'm ever speaking yeah. at a school, so to speak, is that students need to have a voice at the table. It doesn't need, student-centered is a way people say things, but in some ways, this is not exactly student-centered, except the pedagogy, social, emotional sort of pedagogy needs to surround them. But it's just students have a voice at the table that's equal to other voices at the table. And, and rather than punishment, which, you know, you can punish somebody like a Band-Aid, you can kick them out of the school, you can do whatever. That's not inspiring any growth or learning or preparing children for the world. And in turn, when children re-enter after being punished, for lack of a better term, I guess, um, that inspires no growth in term in the school or in their school day or with relationships with other people or even give them an understanding of exactly who their behavior affected. And nobody has an understanding of why that child was acting that way, what's underlying it. So that was a kind of a romp through and reflection of the book. Yeah. Can you um, would it just give me a sense of student-led, uh, student-centered, adult-led sort of practices and restorative practices and maybe a 10,000-foot view of what you're trying to do with the book and your organization? Yeah, for sure. So I think that when we're looking at behavior, you know, a lot of times we look at um, the behavior that happens and discipline we look at as a tool to make the adult feel better a lot of the times and not really this teaching tool that, you know, behavior sort of lends itself to. So what the book does, what our organization does, what myself does um, when I'm doing, you know, youth work and work in education is seeking to understand behind that behavior. So we understand sort of the driver of that. I think a lot of times in discipline practices, when we don't allow sort of voice in the process, what ends up happening is we don't get all of the understanding behind that behavior because we start to try to understand it ourselves and not really put the student at the center. And if we don't understand what's driving that behavior, when we're doing a consequence, it's not going to be teaching, which is sort of the root word of discipline. So that teaching is going to be lost. It also takes away some of this intrinsic value that we're trying to get when we're trying to do behavior change because the students aren't involved in the process as much. So if we want to move back to that intrinsic, keeping them in the front seat and allowing them to be heard and working through it. And what restorative practices does is gives us a really nice way to do that because it sounds really good. But, you know, you know, in a quick redirection, if you're a teacher in the classroom, you're not going to have time to sort of pause your class, take a student out in the hallway and have a 15 minute conversation with them to do this. So what restorative practices does, what the book tries to do is give the things in real time that you can do to have to seek to understand and allow that voice to be part of that process. So um, I'm going to slow down for a second because we just had technical difficulties and I think I launched into this. Nathan, can you tell me a little bit before we um, before I move on with this thread? Can you tell me a little bit about your background and what you do on a daily basis and how this um, framework sort of inspires what you do? Yeah, for sure. So um, I studied behavioral neuroscience at Purdue University. And then um, what I started doing when I was in that degree was I started working part time at a residential treatment care center. Um, and that was youth that were involved with um, juvenile probation, as well as youth that were involved with Department of Child Services and sort of in our resident treatment care center. And it really got me a good understanding of 
how sort of behavior is perceived and, and how the systems work, you know, around sort of what we're doing. Um, I, I really sort of got a love of that. So then after I graduated, I went full time. Um, for three years, I ran the Violent Offender Program there in the Resident Treatment Care Center, and it was in Lafayette, Indiana. Um, I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed working with that population um, and sort of seeking to understand what was driving their behaviors and doing um, things that were really trying to help offset and drop down some of this recidivism. So I started doing that. And then after those three years, I stayed in the juvenile justice field. And then I, for four years, I worked on the clinical team and I did more countywide things. So then at that time, that's when I started getting my feet wet with um, being in the schools and, and education. So I started supporting some different areas, schools in Lafayette, Indiana, some middle schools, elementary schools and high schools, but it was just specifically with the groups that were involved with juvenile probation. So it was just those populations. So it was good, but it was very reactive. And what I know mm -hmm. now with restored practices, it's such a proactive approach. It's all about the social capital and relationships. So me as someone that was working with the county, when I would come in there and try to facilitate something with the school administrator or the teachers or, you know, whoever was working with those, those youth at the time, it was very um, band-aid like still. So, you know, it was great, but, you know, I still wanted to get into education myself. So now I took the proper steps. Um, I went into education and I started out as an educator in Lafayette, Indiana. I started out as in charge of a sort of a counselor program. And I was a college career readiness coordinator for that um, school as well as a high school um, for youth that dropped out of high school. So it was sort of a different type of um, non-traditional education. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, I transitioned into an assistant principal position. I started doing that. Um, then after those couple of years, Purdue University contacted me and I was my alma mater. So I was pretty excited. And they said, hey, we want to open up a high school in downtown Indianapolis for underserved and underprivileged youth. Um, we see that there's um, a lot of these really cool, innovative schools, especially out of California and here in Indiana. We're trying to do some different things and saying, you know, we don't want to focus on sort of the, the private um, you know, sector. We don't really focus on some of the populations that don't get some of these uh, uh, resources sometimes, you know, because, mm. you know, we understand the, the opportunity gap that's out there. So what Purdue did was they put the resources in. Um, I moved down to Indianapolis. I helped open it up with um, my um, principal at the time, Toy Award. Um, we did a great job and, and brought in, you know, these youth. We were able to get 150 freshmen in. We continued to scale that up until... Um, we had sort of a full, you know, group. We had our actually first graduating class last year, which was pretty cool. So I did that. Um, mm -hmm. And then after my first year working with that Purdue Polytechnic High School is when I met the other co-author of the book, um, Brad Weinstein. Um, Brad was really big on, you know, social media, amplifying sort of teacher voices at the time. And he started a um, group called Teacher Goals and on Facebook and on Twitter. And it got sort of a lot of action, just sharing like funny things and, you know, stuff like that that people could relate to. And Brad also was doing restored practices at the time prior to he was a school administrator, a teacher for 11 years. So he, you know, him and I started talking when he was working at Purdue as our director of um, curriculum. And him and I decided to sort of go together and present the book two times in publications about what we want to do about restored practices. Um, it was taken up by that. So we co-authored the book, Hacking School Discipline. At the same time, we also have this Google spreadsheet that we were using to sort of track the effectiveness of restorative practices. Because I was always telling for the last 10 plus years, because I was trained in restorative practices back in 2007. And I was always telling people, hey, this works. But I never had the, the, the data behind mm. it. And your student information systems really pigeonholed. You know, you don't get a lot. PBIS systems are great, but, you know, they also sort of don't, don't 
lend itself to restorative practices as well. So we created our own and then we had this Google spreadsheet started doing this. Um, then also one of my friends out of Chicago, he's working for MIT um, in Massachusetts, and uh, but he lived in Chicago and he said, hey, I can turn this into a software program for you. So then we started Behavior Flip, which is the first restorative software program. So now what I do full time is I um, run Behavior Flip. Um, we have about 60 school districts in there right now. So again, a really small sort of um, tech company in education, as well as I do consulting and supporting these practices in different schools, mainly here around the U.S., but I also do international stuff as well. You're a go-getter. <laughs> I, am, I am. I love this stuff. Yeah. I think my listeners are in good company. Just uh, I need to give a, some background so you know the lens through which I'm yeah. coming at this. So I work at the South Burlington School District of Vermont, and I should say I, I, I'm impulsive, so you can't um, assume that anything I say has anything to do with what they hope to practice. Yeah. This is, on one hand, this is sort of a tacit pitch to administration of the school to at least think about these practices and the, the ins and outs. Yeah. But other than that, I was um, one of the troubled youth you probably would have worked with. And when I got myself out of that cycle, I started working in schools. And, you know, you, your book, um, like Ross Green's work, work like that is sort of just giving me words that were at the tip of my own tongue in terms of my experiences trying to work with kids and then reflecting on my own. So I started this podcast. I wrote, I've written a few books, one about addiction that I wrote with an addiction psychologist um, and, and one about children and something similar to your framework. And so the listeners of this podcast are, they run the gamut. They're psychologists and clinicians. They're people who practice in the addiction field who are interested in restorative justice at a universal level, you know, adults yeah. and kids, and also educators. And I think that the bulk of my listeners want to know more about how to practically implement something like restorative practice, restorative justice, just across the board. I was wondering if we could start with, let's get into the school mindset. Yeah. Can you give it an example, as you did in the book, there are a lot of great examples of an, a situation that could be handled punitively and swiftly versus that same situation being handled somewhat restoratively and what you think the consequences would be doing one versus the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could definitely give a scenario. I think that um, a lot of times, you know, we start to see, let's say something more verbal um, disagreements between two students. So let's say that we had two students in the cafeteria um, those two students were sitting next to each other um, and, you know, one of them started saying something to the other one. They both stood up, sort of um, distracted away from their other peers. Let's say they were, you know, exchanging words back and forth. It got pretty aggressive. No physical stuff, but it got sort of verbally aggressive. Um, you know, so what happened was the um, staff that were working there in the cafeteria, they made a referral down to the office because there's, you know, profanity used, it, it was disruptive, it was big. So let's say that those two students come down to me as the um, dean. Um, you know, that was one of my positions that I've had. So, you know, they came down to me as the dean of this high school, these two students. Um, something on the punitive lens, what I would do is I would, you know, have them come in. I would sort of look through our policies, procedures and see what, you know, cursing, what verbal aggression looks like and sort of see what that script would be for that. And then I would give out whatever that consequence would be. There might be some, hey, what's going on with you two? Um, you know, why did this happen? And then a lot of sort of um, centering around me. You know, I would say, hey, this is not what you should be doing in the school. You know, this is what our cafeteria rules are. 
this is how we handle things. So again, it's centered around me a lot as the adult. Um, and again, there'd be some sort of consequence. So let's say it would be the next time they have lunch, they're going to be in an in-school suspension room for just one day, just for one lunch, because that's the first time these two things happen. And then as a school administrator, I'm done with that situation. If it happens again, that's when I would progress that consequence to something more. So that's that punitive lens. Let's say I'm the restorative dean now. Those two students come down to my office. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to meet with each one of these students separately. Um, and when I meet with these two students separately, I'm going to seek to understand why that behavior is happening. So I'm going to ask them open-ended questions. I'm going to use some effective statements, the I statements. I'm going to um, really relate to what they're saying, take some notes, sort of create some cognitive dissonance between their behaviors and any goals that I can sort of go into. So get that for that student pull the other student in and do a similar conversation. And again, in a situation like this, I'm spending maybe five to less than 10 minutes on each one of these two situations because I don't want to make it you know, a huge situation it's the first time this happened. So five minutes each student. Then after that, I get permission from both those students and say, hey, can I bring you two together? We're going to do a quick mediation. So I get permission from both those two students first because I believe that permissions opens up the door for that intrinsic sort of learning that I'm trying to facilitate. When I bring them together, I do a quick mediation between the two. I let them both have their side and I have them ready to go because I've already seeked to understand what was driving this behavior. Now I'm helping them communicate with each other around this situation. Um, I'm going to have them have this mediation, figure out, and then at the end, we're going to do a plan of action with one goal in mind, whatever that goal is in mind, but something to based off of why they did what they did. So if they used to be friends, they had a disagreement, we're gonna come up with one sort of plan of action for them. And then what I do is after that's done, um, you know, I let them go back to, you know, their daily routine there in the school, but I put a calendar invite on my calendar for, let's say three days later, two days later, depending on sort of volatile volatility of the situation. And then I check up with both the students about if they've done that task. And that's what I do for every situation. Both of those situations, the punitive dean and the restorative dean takes very similar amounts of time sometimes. Maybe sometimes you may have to front load a little bit of that time with the restorative side. But again, we see that with the outcomes later um, is what we believe in and what sort of uh, my work's done. Let's talk about the front loading of yeah. this, this concept. I mean, that's that's basically what your book was about. You want to, you know, scaffold a, sort of a culture that restorative practice comes naturally to people. Um, one of the ways that you mentioned, and, and you can list any others that you'd like, but is are restorative circles, which I found interesting. Um, and before you even explain what restorative circles are, I had the same caveats that you would give after each chapter, including with restorative circles, um, answered the questions or maybe cynicism or skepticism, not cynicism, that I had about, but what if? So that would be, it'd be interesting if you could... Um, you know, do one of those too. So please explain restorative circles and then what you think might be on the minds of people who would be skeptical. For sure. Yeah, I, I love that. So I think when we're looking at classroom management, um, cultures that facilitate discipline as a learning tool and, and centers things around students, it goes back to this ratio of 80% proactive and 20% reactive. And that ratio was formed by the International Institute of Restorative Practices, the IRPs, through some of their case studies that they were doing through restorative justice, restorative practices. So we're trying to get to that 80% proactive. We're, we're not just establishing relationships with our students, but we're feeding those relationships with our students. A lot of times we feed relationships with students that 
um, may need us the most, most acting out behavior or the students that we feel the most comfortable with. You know, so what we want to make sure and we're doing is feeding relationships throughout all those students in their classroom. And that's tough to do, right? Time is so limited. So what circles helps us do is it gives us a vehicle to feed those relationships throughout the day. Sometimes circles are done in, in the morning as sort of a morning meeting type circle where they're facilitating the circle. Sometimes after a situation occurs, it's more of a reactive tool. Sometimes it's, hey, we just talked about this lesson in a chapter. Let's circle up and talk about it. There's so many different um, you know, ways that we can utilize these vehicles of the circle. Circles as a whole was, it was derived from practices of indigenous population, um, mainly here in the North America, some in New Zealand. Um, and when they were facilitating their circles, it was a way to bring community together and amplify the voices of everyone. We understand that a lot of times when decisions are made, not just in school, but in our society, not just here in our country, but in other countries too, it's being made by people of power. And a lot of times the people of power are people of either privilege or they're people that have, you know, facilitated some way to get into that power role. And the same things happen with our micro communities of schools. Those decisions are being made by someone that has power in those situations. Circles break that down. Everyone's on the same level. The teacher's not sitting at their desk answering emails while the kids are having a morning meeting. You know, they're down there with them and they're all facilitating. Everyone's on the same level. Everyone's allowed to speak. You know, we have a talking piece, which was very similar to the indigenous population where they have the peace pipe and pass it to the left around the circle. So everyone that would have that, that was their time that they could speak and be heard into that circle. And those practices are so powerful when you start doing these circles and especially start doing them on a regular way. It's always optional participation, which creates such a safe dynamic for students to be heard. And it allows everyone to sort of understand and get to know each other in that classroom on a different level. You know, a circle question is not going to be, hey, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? And we're going to pass around, you know, the talking piece like that. That's very surface level. We're going to be talking about things that are getting to know each other, amplifying our cultures that we bring into this micro community of these schools that we're trying to blend in together. So it's not just of, of the people of privilege and people of power that are bringing in sort of that cultural awareness. What circles helps us do too on the reactive side is when situations occur, it brings us all together. So things aren't swept underneath the rug. We understand that sometimes things get, um, you know, really chaotic in classrooms. Sometimes we have, you know, physical altercations, verbal altercations, and those impact not just the couple students that are involved with it, that impacts everyone in that classroom. And what circles does is it lets the teacher be involved in that repairing the harm feature. It lets the students be in charge of repairing the harm and just puts that all back on that community as a whole. And it's so powerful, you know, and, and the, the people that have done circles and have tried circles, you know, they, they stick with them for years and years and years because they see the positive effects of it because it's not just feeding that relationship like what we're trying to do, but it's also setting up this vehicle that we can bring out at, it, at our disposal. It's mm. such a great tool to have in your toolbox. Um, a lot of the pushback that I see around these circles is, you know, when do I have time to do it? You know, and, and again, how do, how do I do a circle like this? So I think with proper training and, you know, reading the books are great. There's, you know, some YouTube references, you know, getting consultants, getting organizations that really understand this to sort of support your school is great because then you understand how to facilitate a circle that's not going to eat up 15 minutes of your precious classroom time. You can do something with 20, 25 students and keep this in 10 minutes or less because everyone sort of understands the procedures, um, understands the, 
the expectations that we have and our expectations are co-constructed. So we're seeking to get some of that intrinsic value from that as well. Um, so, you know, if you're trained up on how to do these circles, they aren't going to have to eat up all your time and everyone can be involved in the process. I like the idea that this is something that just is done on a regular basis. So yeah. it's a it's a way that to have a meaningful conversation and give everybody a voice and give anybody an option not to speak their mind. They can yep. they can simply listen if they want to. And that get that offers a framework for when you're reacting to a situation that people are familiar with. So when it's not simply um something bad happened, let's circle up and talk about this. It's you know it's built into the routine of the day and people begin to know what to expect as they're speaking. Um, people begin to feel as they have a voice and a place in the community, or at least an understanding of who the people are in their community and their basis for doing things and thinking things. And I think that makes it, you know, that makes re restoration sort of a, a, a much more manageable process. For sure. You mentioned the pushback of, you know, what, how, when will I have time to do this? Um, I'm interested to know, this is something you went over in the book too. And one of my first thoughts, I, I know that there are going to be students who are simply opposed or th think that this whole thing is too fluffy or um, recoil at some sort of an issue spoken about in a circle. Um, what are some strategies that you've used to engage those students? Yeah. So I like to make sure that when we have circles set up, that I'm being observant of sort of who feels comfortable in the circle and observant of who's not sort of comfortable in the circle. And the way that we can see the, the students that aren't comfortable in the circle, you know, we see behaviors start manifesting in attention-seeking attention sometimes. So, you know, laughing when other peers are talking, maybe, you know, saying, you know, a comment without sort of the talking piece, which is, you know, whoever's going to be speaking at the time. And seeing some of those behaviors manifest, those are the ones that I start to speak to a little bit more. But to sort of offset this on the proactive side, I make sure that my circle prompts are, one, inclusive. I want to make sure that every student feels comfortable talking. If I say, hey, when's the, you know, what's someplace cool that you went to on your last winter break? And I, I say something like that to my students. And I'm a student that never traveled anywhere. Like, you know, myself, I grew up in poverty. So like if a teacher asked me that, like, I'm not going to say like, you know, I stayed at home all the time and, and be embarrassed by my peers, but I may say something sort of silly because I'm trying to get my own power back because I didn't feel like I was included in that sort of conversation. So what happens in, in that is I, I have the students construct what the inclusive circle prompts are. So I have each one of my students and after we've done a couple different circles, I say, hey, I think I'm really cool and really fun, but you know, I that's just how I perceive myself. So how about you guys come up with what you want to write down and what you guys want to come up with it as ways that we can talk and get to know each other that everyone feels comfortable speaking with. Um, and then I have each student turn in five different prompts to me. I go through the ones, the ones that aren't inclusive, I sort of toss out the ones that um, are sort of could lead to something an inappropriate conversation. I toss those out too. the rest of my buttons to like a, a cookie jar type thing on my desk. I just pull out of those. And what that does is that brings the circles back to the power of the students. So they feel like they're part and that helps me offset a lot of behavioral issues. When I, when I first start seeing a, a behavior that's impacting the learning environment in my circle, significantly enough, what I do is I'm gonna redirect that behavior. I'm not gonna stop my circle, I'm gonna redirect that behavior in a way that doesn't create blame and shame. 
And then after that, what I do is I'm going to talk to that student separately. I'm going to try to empower them to help me facilitate my next circle. So by doing this, I'm not punishing a behavior to help it to change, but I'm using discipline as the teaching tool to help me get to my goal by empowering the student. And, and when I see those types of situations happen, one is it puts sort of, um, you know, a contribution in the social capital of my student because hmm. then the student's not getting a phone call home. They're not being sent down to the office. Like, you know, I'm, I'm building up some rapport there with that situation. And then second is I'm showing them that this is a safe process by helping them be empowered in the situation. I don't have them stand in the circle and apologize to the rest of the circle. I empower them to facilitate my next circle and be my group leader and explain what the talking piece is and explain our expectations, our collective commitments. I can go through that. At a cursory reading of restorative circles i can imagine somebody who would think you know that that there's a type of circle that is um johnny did something bad let's circle up everybody give their two cents about why it was bad it's yeah. the roast of johnny for an hour you know for <laughs> however long yeah and uh, johnny you explain yourself but no it's more that when something occurs that seems to affect the learning environment or affect individuals that's the elephant in the room. So rather than sweep it under the rug and nobody be understood, you're, you're, it's a framework for everybody being understood, including the person who may be likely to be more, most misunderstood, uh, the person who did something that negatively affected others. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times too, our goals on the reactive side is to like stop the behavior make sure it never happens again. And, but again, that's so surface level. What, my goal is with restorative practices is bring up a sense of belonging to each one of my students. So when my students feel like they belong somewhere, they're feeling safe. They feel like they can contribute. They feel like they're part of the process. They can feel great to communicate out situations. So if our goal is changing behavior and making them never stop again, that's tough to do. That's really tough to do. You know, there's, there's a lot of different creative things that we can do, but that's tough. But if we go back to that, reason why this behavior is manifesting and if it's a sense of belonging that's not there for the student in the circle in other situations then that's a lot easier for me to fill that cup up on that proactive side as much as possible can you speak on how how you expect it would be best to scale this uh, sort of idea from conversations with one or a few students to the classroom just school-wide um so that there's some sort of consistency buy-in and you know, fidelity to the, to the idea around not, not only circles, I'm sorry, but just restorative practice in general. Yeah. So I think that when you're looking at, you know, bringing this around and, and getting this started, you want to start out. And the, the first thing you have to make sure that's there is mindsets have to be in the right spot um, for the, for the adults. The restorative practices isn't kid facing strategies or, or whoever we're working with facing strategies they're they're for us. I mean, it's, it's how you perceive it's when you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and you know, you don't immediately say like, you know, screw that guy. Like you, you're thinking in your head, like there, there could be a reason why something's happening. I'm going to take a deep breath right now. It could be, Hey, I'm just, you know, trying to drive really quick right now. Or, you know, their, their kid could be in the hospital that day and they're, they're rushing to the hospital. So it, it's the way that we perceive situations. And if we can check ourselves that way, then it's a lot easier for us to deliver this type of stuff. So making sure that we're trying to change mindsets. And um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Luke Roberts, he talks a lot about, you know, when you're trying to change the mindsets of someone, you've got to start with smaller groups. You've got to get sort of strength-based cohorts together. Um, 
at the school, because if I start out and there's so many top down initiatives in schools and there's a lot of you know consultants that come to schools too that, you know, say, hey, let's make this change and do this. And then you have your yes. teachers that are just trying to do it. You know, they're, they're trying to teach. They're trying to deliver this stuff. They're trying to balance, you know, serving the families and serving the students that they're with. And then you get these consulting groups, you get the admin, you get the district level and all these mandates that come down and they're all good, right? They're, they're all trying to be good to bring in and support kids as a whole, but you, you don't, the teachers are just lost and they're just like throwing stuff at. So that's not restorative. So to get restorative implementation and you've got to practice what you're preaching, just like side thing, like with the circles, I, you know, I facilitate those with my staff. I have my staff do the circles all the time for everything we were doing for staff meeting so they can get familiarized with the process. So when I'm thinking about that cohort, I'm getting voluntary, voluntary sort of teachers that want to be a part of the process, make sure there's some school leaders that are part of the process as well, get that cohort together, get them trained up, make sure the mindsets are, are there for, hey, this is what discipline is going to be looked at as a teaching tool instead of just a punishing tool, and then get them trained up and then slowly grow that from there. Students pick up really quickly when restorative practice is done because you start to see these relationships facilitated more spread out than just with, you know, a couple of the teachers or a couple of the different students, like they're just throughout the building and people feel a lot more safe in situations where you feel like you're going to be heard. If I walk into, you know, work late three times in a row and my boss comes up to me and says, Hey, this is the third time you're late, Nathan. Um, you know, if you're late one more time, you're, you know, you're going to take one day without pay. And let's say that you know, I'm jumping paycheck to paycheck at the time. That's going to really hurt. But let's say the reason why I'm late is, is a big situation that I need help with. I don't know how to navigate this, but I'm not being heard in that process. I'm not going to feel safe in that relationship. And our students with underdeveloped brains, you know, that prefrontal cortex, that CEO of the brain is trying to make decisions. It's not all the way there for our students. We understand the brain's not fully developed. So, you know, mid to late 20s for females and for males. So when we're talking to some of our students, they're already processing situations differently than us. Now they're in an unsafe environment because of the way they perceive discipline in situations. And then they're also navigating sort of this social constructs of making friends and, and, and working with adults that they don't really know yet. So there's all these different layers of it. Those students are picking up on those practices quickly because they, they feel more comfortable. One of the you know, results of restorative practices that's very you know, anecdotal a lot of the times is you know, happier schools. You see teachers that are more happy, you see students that are more happy and go through this. But some of the case studies that have been done by the IRP have shown us that those are what people are saying anonymously with throughout surveys. Even my organization, what we do, we have a comprehensive needs assessment that gets um, qualitative and quantitative data from every group in the school. And again, this is something as if you're a school administrator listening or a teacher, like just getting a Google survey put together that says, hey, how do you perceive situations? Do you feel like you belong in the building? Do your students facilitate? Like getting that information in. And when you can get that in, you can see the results that are going to come from these restorative practices because people do get more happy when they feel safe in the situation. I like the idea that you put forward and um, also when I spoke with Ross Green and it's the way I think too, that these social skills just connect the skills of connection and relating to the world are, I mean, that's our job as teachers as well. We're teaching whatever common core, whatever it is. We're also trying to prepare people to deal with whatever slings of misfortune or anything that the world throws at them. And I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now I, you mentioned that sometimes there are policies from 
from on high that we, we have to respond to. And sometimes that even categorizes certain types of children or certain children into these places where, well, should I really be doing something like this restorative practice with them or are they on their own plan, whatever. And I also um, come into contact with people who they would like to do things in a restorative way, but the knee jerk to execute some, some sort of punitive consequence, it's, it's at least swift and consistent rather than new and, um, you know, unknown. Yep. So I imagine this would be one of the things, but my question really is, have you seen people try to adopt this type of system or just um, framework philosophy where they roll it out thinking, all right, this is going to fix things. It sounded so nice. And then really their own behavior as teachers, administrator just became assimilated into the standard boxes of punitive consequences. And why do you think that happens? Yeah, I, I think that sometimes something like that happens because they're trying to put something in they're trying to, so let's say that you have this cake and this cake is layered up already. You know, you have your systems, you have your mindsets, you have the educators, like that's your three layers of your cake that you have. And, you know, you, you have this cake, but you have this idea of restorative and you say, Hey, I've read some stuff. I've heard some stuff. It sounds really cool. I want to get involved with this practice and you start doing it. So what you do is you, you learn the practices, you start facilitating it. So you take this restorative icing and you put it on top of this cake, uh, your layers of your educators, your layers of your mindsets, layers of your systems. And, you know, it, it works for a period of time, but as soon as you cut past that icing, you're going to hit some different other layers in there. And if that's not all restorative as well, what ends up happening is, is it stops and then you jump into something punitive and you said, I tried that restorative stuff. It didn't work. Now I'm over here. Mm-hmm. And what we say as a restorative group and, and, and bring something in is you've got to layer that cake with everything restorative in, in nature. And, and it starts back with your, your systems as a whole has to be um, lending itself to restorative practices and, and around this. I mean, there's a school district I was working with um, in Tennessee, Lauderdale County. And what was happening was there was, we were, training and we're doing all this great work and working with these school administrators and and the teachers and and getting some good conversations. And then we started diving through the data with that needs assessment that we have. And we started realizing that there's still a significant amount of students going to in-school suspension. We're like, what is going on? And we started pulling the data and looking at it. And it was for students that were wearing black pants. If you have black pants on, it's, it's, uh, you know, a tally onto the punitive system. And if you get so many tallies, it turns into in-school suspension. And it was something. And when I was talking to the um, assistant superintendent at the time, they're like, we have no idea why that's in our code of conduct. It's been in there for years and years and years. It's something the school board voted on a long time ago. It found out it was something that was done, like, I think it was like over 40 something years ago that was put in this code of conduct about not wearing black pants into school. And no one ever questioned it. It just was something, a part of it. The students were taught this and the, um, their, their handbook. And when we're looking at it, I was like, well, what's, what's the purpose of not wearing black pants? Like, like, what is this? And when you're looking at being, um, you know, a mindset and your perspective outside of your privilege that you live in, especially like myself as a white male, um, you know, now I, you know, I, I have a home, I have my son, like, you know what I mean? I have some privileges involved where I can purchase him a lot of different pairs of pants. If it, they say he can't wear black pants, I can go out and buy him another pair of black pants. When I was growing up, I could not. I had a couple pairs of pants. Mm-hmm. And if one of my pairs of pants were black, I'm going to wear those black pants to school because I'm not going to get made fun of because I'm not going to wear this other stuff that I, I found from a cousin or something like that. So like when 
I was in school, I would have been punished a lot for those black pants. And it, it's not that deep to me as a student and, and to the teachers, to the other people, they're just following the rules, but it overloads the system. It's sort of like when we hear the doctors saying, hey, take care of yourself around COVID, like get vaccinated, take, you know, wash your hands, do this stuff, because they're trying to make sure you're not overloading the hospital systems because hospital needs it. We're overloading our discipline systems by black pants. We're overloading our, our discipline systems by all these things, but they're set by people of privilege, bringing these things down. And then we see disproportionality in our data and we're saying, what is going on with this? Is it implicit biases, these other systems? Yes, sometimes there's other things going on into it, but sometimes there's also systems in place. So that's that layer of the cake. I got to layer that up. Next is that mindsets. Like I talked about before, we got to make sure those mindsets and our educators, they have to know how to do this stuff. It's not the utopia of restored practices because I see so many teachers come to me and they say, I've been trained. It doesn't work. And I, and I say, tell me about what, what, what do you go through? And they say, well, you know, I can't have a 10 minute conversation with a student out in the hallway. I can't stop my lesson every single time to do this stuff because what's happening is it's this utopia of what restorative justice used to be in the justice system and the way that we can do and trying to push it into schools. And that's not, it's not working. So what we're saying now is these restorative practices, Dr. Luke Roberts, again, one of the leading researchers in this is, is showing us how we can get this as a process in schools that's effective and efficient. I think that's why a lot of people purchase hacking school discipline and they like it on social media is because they're seeing the ways that they can do this in real time and not just the dream world of these restorative. So then I have my cake layered up. So then when I cut through that restorative icing, I'm hitting all these other different layers. So then we can do consistent, progressive restorative consequences. We can do things that are seeking to understand behind every door when they're teaching. So we're like what you're talking about earlier with social emotional learning deficits and teaching through this. We're bringing up categories that are teaching and coaching our students because we have all of our systems in place. Um, beautifully explained. I could see that the visual was helpful, too. Yeah. And the, the the example of black pants is astounding, but I, we're that might sound funny to people, but I, I I get the message. I understand what you're saying. We're probably doing this a lot of the time. There are probably systems that we have that just are the way that they are, and we enforce them just because we're supposed to enforce things, and we have no idea what that means to our students or even to our the people you know other staff around us. Um, Carol Dweck, I know, who you mentioned um, when you talked about growth mindset in the book. Her, one of her biggest fears, she said, was that people would co-opt the idea of growth mindset, just a finding that she had about how people develop, whether their mindsets are fixed on, you know, or, or growth mindsets. She worried that people would take that information and use it as some sort of an arbitrary, you know, measuring system in schools. Mm -hmm. And I, I did work in a place um, where they had growth mindset as like you're graded on your growth mindset. Yep. And it's just the, the, the opposite, you know, that's ex exactly antithetical to yeah. the concept that you wanted to get across to people. Um, and once the school was committed to that, and then they could say, well, we're doing growth mindset, um, there was really no way out. In this case, um, in your philosophy and restorative practice in general, what would you suggest to, um, you know, a school who wants to spearhead this and they are tracking it over time? and realize that they're not keeping in line with sort of the underlying values of, of the restorative framework. How do you suggest that people rebound from that or, or reset? Yeah, so I think that the first step to sort of understanding um, 
you know, that type of work and, and the mindset type stuff and growth mindset and how to sort of get some different, you know, data involved with it is self-reflection. And I think that a lot of times, um, you know, self-reflection sounds great, but like, is there a tool to help us self-reflect? So like, is there something where, you know, I, I get three different questions and these three different questions are going to help me self-reflect. It's not something I have to go, you know, share out loud in a staff meeting with my, you know, 30 other teachers or, or whatever this is. Cause again, that's, that's not a safe process, but is there some sort of self-reflection tool that we can do? And if that self-reflection tool lends itself to us connecting the dots a little bit, then what happens is then we can go through and from there, we can start building more system stuff in place. So can we get some accountability people involved in the process? And a lot of times, just like that circle process, because I love the circle as a visual, um, the circle process, everyone's sort of on the same level. You don't have top-down mandates, because then what you do is if you have the top-down mandates in a triangle, and let's say you that your leader is overworked because of the black pants or may not have some of the other skills, whatever, then everyone else in that triangle is not going to be doing it as a fit effectively because the leadership is not structured in a way to facilitate those restorative. When you have the circle, you can have even a weak leader that weak leader or a leader that's overworked with the black pants type situation um, around these practices and the system's still not going to like fail. It's not centered around one person. And then all of a sudden that person gets promoted into another position. And then everyone goes, Oh, we don't do that restorative thing anymore because, you know, uh, Zach moved to this area. Like, you know, everything's built on as a whole. So I think it starts out with some self-reflection tools. Then it comes into some of this accountability type of stuff. Same way we seek to understand with the student's behavior. Um, what I would do in staff meetings with my staff is I would present data around um, behaviors, around referrals, around all these different situations that we had, and I would present it and then we'd have open-ended conversations. It wasn't me saying, hey, I saw that the top behaviors in the school are blank, blank, and blank, and this is what we're gonna do to combat that. No, I'm bringing this as the team. We were you know, sort of a, a school, my last high school that I was at, um, was a school that did a lot of sort of project-based learning and design thinking. And that's so we used that same sort of model to dive into different behaviors. But what that did was create an intrinsic value into making change. And it wasn't centered around one person or the person that was sort of maybe leaving. And that helped to sort of make change. Look, the entire philosophy is, there are a lot of things that I love about it. But one is that it inspires people to, to understand that when they do something or say something or act a way, it's more meaningful both to themselves and to other people. It has an impact on people, whether positive or negative, and that it's not final just because you've done something positive or just because you've done something that negatively impacts people. It's not like you can't um, reroute or change things or, or repair relationships or anything like that. Um, something else that I enjoy about it is that you put an emphasis on listening rather than solving problems and problems tend to become solved when, first of all, you have a framework, but also when all parties are truly understood, they don't feel alone, they don't feel unheard. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this has influenced me in a, in a big way. And I think my colleague who is um, tasked with sort of creating this sort of environment, she said that this book inspired her. You know, she's, she's thinking about it. We're feeling a little overworked at the time with coronavirus and everything that's involved. And that's how she got me to read it. She said, you know, I'm re just reading this book and feeling inspired. And so I recommend it to all. And before we sign off, I know that that was just like a man, wide angle view of everything yeah. that you're doing. Do you think that there's anything for, uh, let's say, let's call myself in this school a startup. 
think there's anything that I left out that is worth mentioning? It's hmm. a good question. I think that when you're first getting started with these practices, I think that the, the number one thing that I like to do on just communication levels and trying to get to this level of seeking understand is being a good listener. And I think that when you're a good listener, you're observant of not just like, you know, what your students are saying, but you're, you're watching nonverbals, you're seeing your community as a whole, um, you're, you're doing this and being a good listener also means that you got to keep yourself sort of in check. Um, Dr. Bruce Perry said a dysregulated adult can never regulate a dysregulated child. So, you know, if we want to be a good listener, we've got to be regulated in the situation. So that's our own coping skills. But I think that when you open up the door to being a great listener and doing this, um, the communication just starts to flow. You become really more safe in the process. You're not just doing things on your own. You're connecting the dots with other people, um, with our students, with other colleagues um, that we work with other staff. I think just being a good listener is a great start. And how can people access some of the resources that you mentioned? Um, so it, you have in every chapter, by the way, <clears throat> besides the book, which I'll link people to, in every chapter you have, uh, what can I do tomorrow? Um, I love that. That's what people are asking for. It brings a lot of value. But I know that you have a website and the resources to access. So anything you give here, I can link to people to as well. Yeah. So um, we have stuff on Twitter a lot. So, you know, just my Twitter um, handle, you know, we have some stuff there. Um, we also have a lot of stuff on behaviorflip.com. That's sort of our, that's that software that I was sort of talking about, but we have a lot of like blog posts and different resources sort of on there. Um, we have a website, but it's sort of being redone right now called the restorativegroup.org. Um, we're sort of building some different resources into that and, and tagging in a lot of these other colleagues that we work with that have been doing a lot of different work. So those are pretty much our main um, focal points. We also have a um, Facebook group. Um, it was called the Hacking School Discipline Facebook group, but it was recently changed to the School Discipline Facebook group. Um, so okay. that's a great one. We have about 60,000 educators in there right now. They all share. Oh my gosh. It. Yeah, it's great because what happens is um, when we first started it, we told everyone that, hey, this isn't just a sounding board for restorative practices. Like share things that aren't working, like share, share what's going on. But you see teachers, you know, write a comment and say like, hey, I've had this kid, you know, walked into my class three times in a row and they keep saying this. And there's a hundred comments on there about other people. Cause like, you know, we truly believe iron sharpens iron. You know, you're not going to find just the best expert in the world and they're going to teach you everything they know. Like you've got to like sharing up with other people that have tried this stuff and done this stuff. It's way better than talking to someone just like me for a couple hours, you know? So like the the resource of that facebook group has been phenomenal on a personal level when you started this um when you started writing the book and started the practice did you did you were did you expect that it would have such an impact such a wide-reaching impact no not at all like i mean like we were like um when um i was first asked to um you know write this book and do this with brad like when we presented to the publisher i mean i was just so excited to be able to you know put my stuff out there i've done a lot of work here in indiana um, but, you know, like I, I just that's that's all it was. And, um, you know, I was really honored sort of to be a part of that. You know, I put my son's name in there because of my friend's names in the book. Like, you know, I was just sort of fun to have it. And then I think that after the first month when, um, you know, our, our publisher reached out and he said, hey, you guys are number six in the world right now for all of nonfiction. And then the next week after that, we were still number 15 in the world for all those books and in Washington Post bestseller and been a bestseller for about two years straight now here in the States and some of the international stuff. I mean, it's been such a huge blessing to see this traction out there. I mean, it was about a month ago, we found out that our um, book's a bestseller in Japan and Korea mm -hmm. also. Um, so just some international stuff. And I think it's, 
Um, you know, I had a meeting, you know, this morning for, you know, a school in Japan. And um, when I'm talking to people international and they're, they're curious around this stuff, it's because the book is just such an easily digestible resource. Like you said, it's not a research like a ton of like research in this. It's like, Hey, this is what we did as practitioners. This is what it is. But like, we had no idea it was going to have the success it did, but it's been such a huge blessing because I know it's not just helping educators in the field is what I'm seeing on Twitter and, and Facebook, some of the other resources, but like that, that it's helping kids. And when I see kids in my community here in Indianapolis that I run into and I talk to and stuff like that, I mean, they, they remember our schools. They remember the way they felt in situations. They may not remember what I said or what some of our other like awesome staff members have said, but they just remember how they felt in this. And I'm just thinking that what this book is doing is cultivating that for so many students all around the world. So it's just such a huge blessing. Well, again, I can't speak on behalf of my school. Some people might even be listening and thinking, why is this idiot saying this stuff? But, um, I don't want to give the impression that we're like a lost school. We're actually, it's just very competent, very kind, very compassionate, thoughtful, great human beings who are working with these kids. And I think the best kind of a book doesn't teach something brand new or smack you in the face with a concept that you never thought of before. I think the best books that I've ever read, including yours, it have a sense of, yeah, I've been thinking that I've never articulated this way before, or I hadn't thought about these yeah. hoops that I might have to jump through. So Thank you again. Um, the book is Hacking School Discipline. And I was talking with Nathan Maynard. Uh, Nathan, thanks again for joining me. And um, what one last thing, uh, now that people have an idea of the scale that you're working with, it was really cool. That a lot of the, I have some pretty cool guests on and a lot of them I've networked and met. And so I happen to be able to get them on. Uh, yours was a cold call or a cold email as it were, and you're very responsive. So the fact that you're responding to people who are interested in you, um, despite your loaded schedule. Much appreciated. Very cool. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm so blessed to be a part of this process for schools and be part of this great, you know, sort of restorative practice out there. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm all about it. So thanks for reaching out.